courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. <laughs> Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. I'm Gloria Felt. I'm co-founder and president of Take the Lead. I'm a lifelong advocate for women. I've written a few books. Uh, my latest, No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power, actually led me into the study of why women hadn't reached parity, so I decided to do something about it. Women buy 85% of the consumer goods and products. Okay, we have the power of the purse. The business case is now clear, that companies that have more women in their upper leadership make more money. We have more education. We are prepared. Women have been earning 57% of the college degrees now for decades. We have what we need. We have the power. We just need to know we have it. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Best-selling author Gloria Felt is a feminist leader who is widely known as a social and political advocate of women's rights. A former head of Planned Parenthood, she tells us what she's learned about the path to female equality. Gloria, when you were a girl growing up in Texas, you were encouraged to marry young and not focus on having a career. Would you tell us about that? I totally drank the Kool-Aid of what the culture was telling me. I will say that my parents always assumed that I would go to college, but I was I was kind of overly precocious, I suppose. I, I started to school earlier than most children, and I, I was younger than anybody in my class, and I just thought I was really the oldest, most mature person in the whole world, and that I was ready to, to take on the world. And I, um, I, I, I just did just that. I married my high school sweetheart. We had three children by the time I was 20. And then I woke up and I realized that I could actually do a lot of things in this world if I had the opportunity. And that changed my life. What made you wake up? So it was uh, 1962 and a wonderful new technology came into the into the world about that time. Do you imagine what it might be? Birth control. You got it, the birth control pill. It's funny, when I ask young women today, they often say the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> because birth control has become just sort of like the air in the water. People assume it's there, but it hasn't always been there, or at least not reliable birth control. And it really was knowing that I could, I could um, proactively and intentionally plan the rest of my life. And that meant that I could start to college. And that's what I did at that point. I started to the community college. I took me three years to do everything I could do there. And then I started doing community service work because I couldn't go on and finish at that point. So that that's how it all that's how it all began. When you had those young children and you were just 20 years old, how did you survive financially? <laughs> well, I, I was fortunate, more fortunate than many young, young women, young brides at that age or, or, or young women who have children very early. Um, I, I was married. I had a husband who had a job. And, but it was certainly the, the fact that it was, um, you know, that, that his, his job was steady. But I wanted my children to be able to have 
piano lessons and to know that they could go to college. And so it wasn't very long before I started being really worried about, well, what if I had to support these children by myself? What would I do? And how could I start bringing additional income into the household so that so that my kids could have some of the advantages that I wanted them to have? What financial advice do you have for single moms who are struggling financially? I think, you know, first of all, the most important thing, and, and one thing I think I did not do all that well at that point, was to look around and see where your support system can be. And it's not so much the financial support system as it is the emotional support system and uh, assistance to be able to, um, who can help you when you need to, to work an evening, for example? Who can, who can help you if you decide you want to take a, a, a course to get better at and be able to get a better job? So I would say that first and foremost, try to find your support system and For anybody, the important thing to know is it doesn't matter where you're starting from. Just start. Just start. you You can begin to better yourself from wherever you happen to be. You said girls are still socialized to first consider what people think about them. What do you mean by that? If you, if you um, ask a uh, a girl. You know, actually, it's interesting. There are there are several different answers to that, and I want to see where I want to actually begin. But boys sort of come out of the womb knowing they own the world because they do. There there has never been any socially constructed restriction on their feelings about what they can do with their lives, and they're encouraged from birth. Girls are still getting messages that start with what they look like. And so they begin to let the locus of power go outside of themselves. And they start to think first about what other people think about them. Girls are more likely to be, to be praised for being, quote, nice, quiet, compliant. Boys are just, you know, the boys will be boys, right? You know, they're noisy, they're dirty, they, and so they don't get as much, they don't get as much um, reward for being um, quiet or the things, you know, the different genders are just treated differently from the moment parents know what gender they're having. They start thinking differently about the children. Do you think that's changing at all? I think it is changing. I do think it is changing. It is not universally changing yet. We do know that by the time both boys and girls are six years old, if you ask them to describe what a leader looks like, they are more likely to describe a man, both males and females. Uh, we know that by that age, they are still, they are more likely to think boys are smarter. Both genders are. And uh, we, uh, well, look, at there are things like, for example, girls make up 5% of the chess players and when they know that they are playing another girl they play equally well when they think they're playing a boy they don't play as well so these are really subtle cultural cues that we get and they're in the implicit bias category it's not that there's some kind of evil plot it's just that millennia of socialization is still with us in some some respect 
Are you saying the focus on females, women's looks, takes away from their power or their sense of power? I do think that the focus on women's appearance can take away from a, a feeling of power or a locus of power. Now, appearance is also a power. And certainly we can all use that as a power in terms of how we present ourselves, how we how we think about ourselves. We want to feel good about ourselves in terms of how we look, how we it, it affects how we feel about ourselves. So it's not entirely a negative. But when when you're responded to as a young girl growing up and particularly as a preteen and a young teenager by people complimenting you primarily on how you look, that takes the locus of power outside of yourself and it puts it, it puts it into the public venue. When you led Planned Parenthood, you used to travel with a bodyguard. How come? Well, I, um, you know, I had a 30-year career with Planned Parenthood. It started in West Texas in a very small affiliate, and I had a chance to grow that. And then I went to, to Arizona, where I had a chance to grow a, a middle-sized affiliate into one of the largest in the country. And then I became the national president of Planned Parenthood. And, and it was at a time when I took over the organization that uh, there was, uh, was a great deal of violence against um, people who worked in reproductive health clinics of all kinds. And um, so I, I, you know, it was as a security precaution, but I never let them run my life. I, I decided early on that uh, that I, you know, my, my value system was such that I was not going to let any any threats change me or what I was committed to. Uh, it just made me more courageous, more intent on doing what I believed in. And I think it, it actually helped me to have greater clarity about my value system and where my integrity was. Coming up, Gloria Feld explains why gender equality has a long way to go and how women can work together to close the gap. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. You said there's a correlation between access to birth control and increasing the number of women leaders. What do you mean by that? Well, there are two things that women need in order to be able to get equality of any kind, to be full citizens, let alone to have equal um, equal opportunity to become leaders in in society. And the two things that women need are the ability to control their own bodies and the ability to earn money. And once you have those two things, you can you can decide what you want to be and do with your life. What do you say to people who say abortion may damage the long-term physical and emotional health of women and so takes away their power? That's just not true. Move on. You said you learned about your personal power at age 63. How so? <laughs> well, after I left uh, after I left Planned Parenthood, my goal was to, to write a book every year. It was kind of ambitious, right? I was going to write a book every year. I had a, a list of books I wanted to write that I would have had to live to be 120 to finish, but never mind. I got started. And I, did, I wrote a couple of books. And the, one book that I wrote was with Kathleen Turner. 
and it was uh, it, it when it started out, um, my book agent had had encouraged me to write her biography because nobody had ever written Kathleen's biography, and Kathleen and I were friends, and so after a few you know, margaritas at our favorite Mexican restaurant. We decided it would be kind of a fun project to do. And we had a 50-50, we didn't even ever have a contract between the two of us. We just had a 50-50 agreement that we were in this together. But what happened along the way was, and of course, I have to acknowledge that I must have allowed it to happen, is that what the publishers wanted was a celebrity memoir, right? So I had brought her to the table. They were fine with me until the book was done. And I had done pretty much all of the writing. And we went for our big publicity meeting that you have before a book is released. And all of a sudden, I was chopped liver. They turned their backs to me. They looked only at her. And that was the moment that I realized, Gloria, this is your pattern. When you were a teenager, you did what you thought the society wanted of you. When, you know, in the middle of your life, you had a wonderful career, you've done things that many people, you know, I mean, it, it was, I would, I would not take a minute away from it. It was incredible. I did great things. But I was always speaking in the voice of an organization. I wasn't speaking for myself. And it hit me at that moment that I had done it again. And it didn't matter how much I loved and adored Kathleen Turner it was her voice. It wasn't my voice. And that it was high time that I started speaking in my own voice. So what was the outcome of that? And the outcome of that was that I started, uh, well, actually, several things happened that caused me to, to take a detour in my path in terms of writing a book every year. And what happened was um, 2008, at the time when it seemed like we were going to have our first woman president the first time around, um, Elle magazine had asked me to write an article on women running for office. And they thought the story would be that with the women at the top of, of a major party ticket for the first time, that, or they thought who would they thought she would be at the top of a major party ticket for the first time? That uh, that women would be running for office everywhere. Well, so I by the time I had done all the interviews, what I learned was that in fact, at that time the story was the real issue was women didn't run for office and they weren't running for office and that they were only half as likely as men ever to think about running for office. And I I was shocked. I was it was I had been an advocate for women for several decades, and we had opened doors, we had changed laws, and women weren't walking through those doors? What was the matter? And so it led me into a really deep study of why that was the case. And I found that there were, and I, I started it with politics, but I soon realized that the dynamics were the same, and it didn't matter whether it was business or entrepreneurship or, or whatever it was. It was the same dynamic. And it was an ambivalent relationship with power because of that socialization that women have had, because of the way the locus of power gets taken to the outside of us, because of the fact that we are not treated as nicely as men when we assume powerful positions, because when we put our hands up to say we want a raise or a promotion, we are less likely to get it than men. And so we stand back and we get more risk averse. And we get. So I was just I was like, I've got to do something about this. I, this is this is not right. This is absolutely not right. We have to figure it out. And when I wrote my book, No Excuses, as a result of that, No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power, 
to me, it was a social commentary book. And I had, you know, I have a chapter that picks out, pick, picks its way through each one of the reasons why this happens. And then being a practical activist in each chapter, I have, this is what you do about it. Here are one, two, three things you can do about it. And other people recognized it as a leadership book and started asking me to teach workshops using it. And when I started teaching those workshops, I noticed women having pretty amazing breakthroughs just by getting them to shift how they were thinking about power. So how can women own their power? First of all, to recognize that we don't have to do power like it has been done through the years. We can redefine power in a way that we feel comfortable with and that enables us to embrace it with intention and confidence and joy. And that is by changing our definition of power from the old, oppressive, no longer even functional in today's world, which is an economy that's based on brains, not brawn, that is the power over. See, the narrative of history has been written about wars and finite pies and, you know, you have to to fight for your little crumb. Well, the truth is there is no finite pie. So when I can get women to shift that thinking to a more expansive creative, innovative, power to, power to make life better for your family, for the world, for the community, power to innovate, power to, it it just, I would see masks fall off of faces. And women would say, well, I want that kind of power. Give me more of that. And then they would go do it. Mentor played a big part in your life. What's your advice for women who want to be effective mentors? A mentorship does not have to be a lifelong commitment. I think often women worry about becoming a mentor for somebody because they think that it's something they will have to do for a very long period of time. But sometimes one simple thing that you do for someone is enough to help them define their next career move, um, help them know what to do in a particular situation. So I think that's one thing. But the other thing is to to try to be, you know, to try to understand the difference between being a mentor and being a sponsor and where you fit best. Being a mentor is is advising someone about, you know, you, you can talk about anything. Being a sponsor is when you've identified a real ability or skill in a person and do you 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 speak on their behalf. You help them actually move up the the leadership ladder. You you may be you may be talking about what they could be or a position that they could be considered for when they are not even in the room. What's one way you're helping to empower the next generation? You know what's funny is I never use the word empower. I try to steer away from it because I don't believe I can empower anyone. But what I can do is I can help you know the power that you already have. Look. Women buy 85% of the consumer goods and products. Okay, we have the power of the purse. The business case is now clear that companies that have more women in their upper leadership make more money. We have more education. We are prepared. Women have been earning 57% of the college degrees now for decades. We have what we need. We have the power. We just need to know we have it. We have to know We have to be willing to embrace it, and we have to be willing to use it. And truthfully, 
you know, effective leadership requires embracing our own power and acknowledging it and being responsible for what we're doing with it. So that's why I don't use the word empower. I I, want to do everything I can to help you know the power you already have. Do you still think women will achieve leadership parity by 2025? I think it's a big stretch, but I do think it can be done. I think that in addition to the business case and and the the power of the purse and the power of education, I think there's also the power of timing uh, between Me Too and Time's Up and everything else that's going on in the world. If there was ever a moment where we can make quantum leaps, this is it. What I also know is that as with any movement, if you don't take that moment, it flies past you very quickly. So I think we can do it. And I am certainly committed to making sure that we do everything we can to make gender parity happen. Time now for your secrets. I'm Gloria Felt, and my money secret is that social capital has always been more important to me than anything. And by developing my social capital in terms of relationships with people, it has inured to the benefit of my financial goals as well. Be sure to check out our ebook based on the Secrets podcast. WSJ subscribers can download their copy of Resilience How 20 Ambitious Women Use Obstacles to Fuel Their Success for free on WSJ.com today. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.